Jesus Christ at this very moment sits at the right hand of glory on the Father's right side. And as I mentioned in our prayer, this is a truth that really fuels us and, and equips us every day. And it's something we celebrate every Sunday. But today in particular is a special, a special day because we set aside this day to pay particular attention to the resurrection, to celebrate the resurrection with a, with a level of, of, of intentionality uh, beyond what we might talk about in other weeks. And so what I want to do today is something very, very simple. I want us to talk about two aspects of the resurrection. I want to talk about the certainty of the resurrection and I want to talk about the significance of the resurrection. So let's talk first about the certainty of the resurrection. The empty tomb was an undeniable fact among the first century world. Consider for a moment those whose interests were without question opposed to the resurrection. That is, the Jews and the Romans. Jesus Christ was a threat to the Jewish establishment of his day. And so the Jewish leaders went through great lengths to arrange Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his execution. The last thing that they wanted, the last thing they wanted to deal with, were allegations of a risen Jesus. The Jews had every motive in the world to show that Jesus was still in the tomb. And then we have the Romans. The Romans had little interest in the religious disputes of the Jews, as long as such controversies were local in nature and did not threaten to destabilize the empire. But allegations of a risen Christ and the influence of this new religious movement was a growing irritation to Rome. Not only did the Romans have motive to disprove a risen Christ, but as the supreme earthly power and authority of its day, they also possessed the means and the opportunity to show that Christ was still in the tomb if indeed he really was. Now, you recall, immediately after Christ's death, both the Jews and the Romans took every precaution to ensure that nothing happened that could be misconstrued as a resurrection. The Jews assigned temple guards to stand watch over the tomb and then arranged for a Roman contingent to do the same. A Roman seal was placed on the tomb, meaning that the body of Christ was in the official custody of the Roman government, of the Roman state. Any attempt to remove the body would be an act of treason against Rome, and everyone knew that wouldn't end well. Now consider, what would have been the simplest and most effective way of destroying the credibility of the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection? What would have been the simple and easiest way to do that? Answer, publicly display the corpse of Jesus Christ. You see, together, the Jews and the Romans had the means and the motive to do so. But they did not because they could not. They could not do it because the tomb was empty. Not only did they fail to produce the body of Jesus, but they failed to offer any public denial of the empty tomb. You see, there was absolutely no point in arguing about the empty tomb. Everyone, friend and opponent alike, knew that the tomb was empty. The main debate consuming everyone's attention was not whether the tomb was empty, 
but why it was empty. Now, throughout the last two millennia, people have created all sorts of alternative scenarios to explain the empty tomb. And I want us this morning or this afternoon to consider three of the most common allegations. Maybe someone stole the body. Maybe Jesus didn't really die. He just fainted. Or maybe they all went to the wrong tomb. Imagine that. The first attempt to explain away the empty tomb, interestingly enough, is recorded in the scriptures themselves. Turn with me to Matthew 28. And we'll read in beginning in verse 11. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money. And did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Of course, any allegation that the tomb was empty because the disciples stole the body of Christ, it lacks credibility for several reasons. Multiple reasons. I'll present just four. One of the biggest and most glaring problems with this theory is that it ignores the fact that the disciples weren't even expecting the resurrection to begin with. Remember, it was the Pharisees who remembered Jesus' claims that he would rise again on the third day, not the disciples. After Jesus' death, they went into hiding. They were scared. They were confused. They were hardly clever plotters. This is not the stuff that conspiracy is made of, is it? Secondly, this theory fails to explain the radical change in the disciples' behavior from the scared cowards we just mentioned hiding from the Jews to those who were willing to suffer persecution and death for their convictions of seeing Jesus alive again. And third, would it not have been an utterly foolhardy mission for this band of scattered, fearful fishermen to try and overcome a contingent of trained Roman soldiers and thereby steal the body of Christ from this sealed tomb guarded by a Roman contingent, such a mission would have been absolutely suicide, not to mention unsuccessful. And finally, finally, stealing a body is one thing, giving it life is an entirely different thing. This theory fails to explain the numerous appearances of Jesus over the next 40 days, not the least of which is an appearance to at least 500 brethren at one time. Okay, well, if the disciples did not steal the body, maybe the Jews did, or or maybe the Romans did. Now, it's true, the Romans did have the means and the opportunity to do so. But as we've already discussed, they certainly did not have the motive. A resurrected Jesus is absolutely the last thing the Romans wanted. And the Jews had an even less motive than the Romans. It's ludicrous to argue that the Romans or the Jews stole the body of Jesus. They had no motive to do so. And it's equally ludicrous to argue that 
The disciples stole his body. They lacked the means, motive, and opportunity. Well, another popular alternative to the resurrection is the view that Jesus didn't really die. That instead, he fainted and later revived in the cool, damp tomb. But this view fails to take seriously the severity of Jesus' fatal wounds. In fact, during the first century and for several hundred years afterwards, Christ's death was acknowledged with such certainty that even the harshest critics of the resurrection weren't absurd enough to even suggest such a position. Now, more recently, or relatively recently, on March 21st, 1986, the Journal of, American Medic- of the American Medical Society had this to say, quote, clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and the heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. The allegation that Jesus didn't really die also ignores the fact uh, also ignores the fact that Jesus' death was witnessed by many, including the Roman authorities, and it assumes that they were mistaken in what they saw. Now, I assure you, the Roman soldiers were accustomed to crucifixion and to observing people die in this matter. They knew what death looked like, and it's unlikely that they would have considered Jesus dead if, in fact, he wasn't dead. And even if, for the moment, we ignore the fatality of the crucifixion and we imagine that somehow Jesus survived, we still have a number of unanswered problems. The tomb was sealed with a large stone and heavily guarded. Even if Jesus did revive in the tomb, he could not have removed the stone, much less sneak away from the Roman soldiers stationed at his tomb. The stone was not capable of being moved by a single person, and on top of that, Jesus would not have been at his peak athletic condition. And then even more importantly, we have the words of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 53, verse 14, which informs us that Jesus' appearance was so marred that he didn't even look human anymore. This means that if he did survive the ordeal, his wretched appearance would have made it impossible for Christ to stand before his disciples and convince them that he was the conqueror over death, the prince of life. No, Jesus did not merely faint. And there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus was executed by Roman crucifixion and his lifeless body was laid in the tomb. Well, maybe everyone did go to the empty tomb. Is that a possibility? Well, the reasoning would have to go something like this. In the darkness of the early dawn, the women went to the wrong tomb and reported that Jesus was alive. Let's ignore his appearance for the time being. And then, of course, in the daylight... The disciples also made the same mistake and went to the wrong tomb as well. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, the tomb's owner, must have become equally confused since apparently he couldn't clarify the mistake. 
Then the Romans and temple guards either forgot where the real tomb was or they were confused from the start and put their official Roman seal on the wrong tomb, which happened to be an empty one. Now everyone started to go to the wrong tomb, finding it empty. So aside from this theory's ridiculous dependence upon an improbable string of mistaken identities, this theory also has numerous problems. It fails to consider the extent of the Jews' hostility towards the resurrection, along with that of the Romans, uh, Roman authorities, and it assumes the incompetence of both groups, who would have stopped at nothing to discredit the resurrection. If the women went to the wrong tomb in the dark, you can be certain that the authorities would have investigated the matter thoroughly and located the right tomb in the light so that they could produce the body and refute the error. And as with other theories, it fails to explain the radical transformation of the disciples into those who were willing to endure torture, imprisonment, and death for their convictions that Jesus Christ was alive. We can be quite confident that everyone was at the right tomb, just as we can be confident that Jesus didn't faint, nor did anyone steal the body. Now, the most common denial of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is simply to argue that it never occurred. Such a position argues that the New Testament documents are not historically reliable. And therefore, the events described in the gospel accounts are not trustworthy. However, we can be quite confident that the New Testament accounts are historically trustworthy. Two questions are relevant here. Two questions. Does the Bible we have in front of us today accurately convey what was actually written 2,000 years ago? That is, can we be sure that the Bible was accurately transmitted to us? I mean, you always hear the allegations. The Bible's been copied so many times. How can we be sure that the text we have in front of us is the text that was actually written? Well, the answer is an undeniable yes. We can be confident in the text. Why? Because we have in our possession over 5,000 ancient copies of the New Testament documents. And the varied dates and the varied location of these ancient manuscripts enable scholars to reconstruct with overwhelming precision the original wording of the text. This is called the science of textual criticism, and the New Testament text is the most historically attested ancient manuscript in the world. Nothing else even comes close. There's such a rich wealth of evidence in favor of the textual integrity of the New Testament text, it's actually embarrassing with respect to other people who are investigating other ancient texts at the lack of manuscript evidence they have in their possession. So there is no document on the planet that is as greatly attested through a chain of ancient Greek translations distributed over space and distributed over time that allows scholars to reverse engineer and identify where there was scribal errors and identify those and understand the right text and ultimately trace everything back to what the original authors originally wrote. Okay, fair enough. 
But that doesn't mean that the testimony inside the text is accurate. After all, just like today, anybody can write anything they want to. Just because somebody wrote of a resurrection 2,000 years ago and we know that we've accurately received what they wrote doesn't make what they wrote necessarily true, does it? <clears throat> so it's still a fair question to ask whether the eyewitness testimony contained in the text is credible. Well, time prevents a deeper dive into this topic, but the eyewitness testimony contained in the Gospels stands up as unquestionably credible amidst the most rigorous tests for both internal and external consistency and other criteria for evaluating the truthfulness of eyewitness evidence. So yes, brothers and sisters, you can rely upon the fact that we have a faithful copy of what the New Testament writers actually wrote. And time prohibits further discussion of this, but you can be rest assured that the eyewitness testimony contained therein withstands the greatest rigors of truth tests to determine whether or not that testimony is credible. And it is. Nevertheless, there are some who refuse to listen to the facts and insist upon the unreliability of the scriptures. However, most of the challenges to scripture's trustworthiness are not based upon an evaluation of the facts, but are rooted in the premise that miracles are impossible. Actually, we can go deeper than that. It's rooted in the hardness of hearts that refuse to listen to what God would have spoken. But on more of a surface treatment, there is a denial that miracles are credible. And thus, the scripture's reference to the miraculous, including the resurrection, are the product of a bygone culture that was naive and superstitious. So goes the argument. Now, such a position has its origins in a worldview birthed during the Enlightenment period, or what's also been referred to as the Age of Reason. This is why it's important to study history, because we learn why we think the way we think, or why the prevailing culture thinks the way it thinks. And you can trace a lot of contemporary thinking all the way back to the Enlightenment period that began in the late 1600s and, and, and continued through the early 1800s. Okay. A number of things changed in, in the cultural, in Western civilization thinking through the Enlightenment period, one of which was authority was questioned. It also embraced the notion that man is inherently good and humanity could be improved through rational change. Right? They argued that human experience is the final judge of everything that is, of what is true and what is false. And it operated with the conviction that science and reason, not religious dogma, would explain all natural phenomenon and deliver man from all his woes. In other words, the Enlightenment enculturated man's sense of self-righteousness, self-rule, and self-sufficiency. In the mind of the Enlightenment thinker, God was unnecessary and irrelevant. And as a result of the Enlightenment, faith in the necessity and sufficiency of the Scriptures was rejected in favor of scientific reasoning. And since the Bible's central proclamation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is a miraculous event outside the boundaries of scientific reasoning, 
the Scriptures are declared historically unreliable by those whose thinking is shaped by the themes we've just discussed. Okay, so we'll briefly consider two allegations that follow from a rejection of the historical reliability of the Scriptures. And these two are this. Maybe the resurrection is just a myth or a legend. Or maybe the disciples just lied about the whole thing and are perpetrating some sort of hoax or conspiracy. Well, a favorite theory of liberal critics is the allegation that the, sto- that the story of the resurrection developed as a myth or a legend. But here's the thing. The chief problem with this theory is its timing. That's because it takes time for myths or legends to develop. Time that was not available based upon the dates that the gospel accounts were written. You see, the New Testament documents containing the eyewitness testimony of Christ's resurrection, they were written within 20 to 50 years of the events they described. Okay, John is probably the latest, written in the late 80s. Okay, the others were written somewhere in the 50s or the 60s. All in all, 20 to 50 years um, uh, uh, from the time the gospel accounts were actually composed relative to the date of the events they're bearing witness to, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is significant because a great number of both positive and hostile eyewitnesses would have still been alive at the time the New Testament documents were written. And because such living eyewitnesses would have been able to expose and discredit any exaggeration or misrepresentation, we can be conf- that's one of the reasons we can be confident that what is being written is true. You're less likely to today make up a story about what happened with respect to our nation's history with 9-11 now, because there's many of us that were alive when that happened. And if you're going to misrepresent that, I'm going to cry foul. Right? Myth and legend does develop. Uh, and, they do, and, and myths and legends of Christ did show up, but not until centuries later. The apocryphal writings and the writings of other groups who claimed to follow Jesus, such as the Gnostics, did produce stories about the life of Christ that had mythical and legendary elements. But these are much, much later developments. The indisputable fact that the four gospel accounts were written within 20 to 50 years of Christ's death and resurrection defies any argument that the resurrection is the product of myth or legend. They just simply don't have time on their side. Well, another argument against the resurrection is the allegation that the disciples simply lied. Critics in this camp argue that the resurrection is a hoax uh, or the product of some sort of conspiracy to hide the truth. Again, There are numerous problems with this theory, some of which we've already touched upon earlier. The theory that the disciples lied fails to explain at least three key facts. At least three key facts. First of all, as we've mentioned already, the apostles' conduct was dramatically changed from cowardness to boldness almost overnight. The rapid transformation of the apostles' lives immediately after they were convinced of the resurrection, is an undeniable fact that demands a full explanation. The authorities arrested the followers of Jesus and beat them. Yet, they were soon back in the streets preaching about Jesus. 
Even their enemies noticed their courage. And not only did the apostles preach the risen Christ, they did so in Jerusalem, the very heart of Roman and Jewish hostility. The fact that the apostles braved opposition, cynicism, ridicule, hardship, prison, and death in three continents as they preached everywhere that Jesus was alive, folks, that's a fact that simply can't be ignored. However you're going to explain the resurrection, you better explain that. The apostles also died torturous deaths as a result of their convictions, as a result of their testimony. And it's highly, highly, highly improbable that 12 men would be steadfast to the point of death for what they knew to be a lie. You see, history is full of folks who have given their lives for a lie. But they died for what they believed to be true. They didn't know it was a lie. If the resurrection didn't really happen, the apostles would have known it. In fact, considering all the evidence, there is no way to demonstrate that the, that the disciples could have been deceived. In other words, if the disciples died for a lie, they knew it was a lie. And it is difficult, if not impossible, to imagine that history would converge upon 12 men who have been deranged enough who would be deranged enough to face death and such, with such steadfastness and boldness for something which in their heart of hearts they knew to be a lie. You might find one person who could do that, one person who is truly deranged, but 12 all at the same time, all steadfastly committed to what they know to be the truth, would not one person break if this was collusion, if this was indeed a conspiracy, that's a tough sell. That's a tough sell. And here's another reason. If the apostles fabricated a conspiracy, it is highly improbable that they would have engaged the testimony of women. Recall that the empty tomb was discovered by women who were also the first to witness the risen Jesus. It's important that you understand that in first century Jewish society, women were not qualified to act as legal witnesses. Their testimony was not even admissible in court. If the story of the resurrection was a fabrication, if it was the product of some sort of conspiracy, if it was some concocted plan to deceive, you can bet that the male disciples of Jesus would have certainly been the ones who found the tomb empty and encountered the risen Lord. The only reasonable explanation for why the women witnesses are given first priority in the New Testament records is that the writers recorded the events as they actually occurred. And that's actually what happened. The inclusion of women's testimony is a clear indication that the reports of the New Testament documents concerning the resurrection of Jesus are not, fabric, are not fabrications, but are accurate, factual accounts. So we can be certain that the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. No one stole the body. Jesus didn't resuscitate after merely fainting on the cross. He really was dead. And no one went to the wrong tomb. We can also be certain that the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection in the gospel accounts are historically reliable. The resurrection is not the product of myth or legend. 
and the disciples were not some sort of schemers perpetrating some sort of hoax or other conspiracy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was executed by Roman crucifixion. He was buried. And on the third day, He rose again in bodily glory. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, and then to Peter, and then to the twelve. In total, there are at least ten post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, including His appearance to more than 500 brethren at one time. Forty days later, our Lord ascended into heaven, where today He sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. Numerous times, Jesus predicted His death and resurrection. For example, in Matthew 17, we hear our Lord say, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. Because Jesus rose in glory as He said He would, we can be confident that everything else Jesus said is also true. We can be confident that Jesus is God in human flesh. We can be confident that Jesus is the Messiah of Old Testament promise. We can be confident that the Old Testament Scriptures, Jesus so often quoted, are truthful and authoritative. And we can be confident that Jesus came into this world to give His life as a ransom for many. But what are we to make of these things? What do these things mean? And what does all of this have to do with you and me? What does all of this have to do with waking up each day in the trenches of life? Well, to really understand the significance of the resurrection, we have to look at the full message of the Bible. And one of the ways to do this is to organize the Bible's message according to four key ideas. What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about man, about you and me? What does the Bible say about Jesus and what He did? And finally, what does the Bible say our response must be to these first three things? Well, first, what does the Bible say about God? You see, the Bible explains that God has no equal. He is excellent and praiseworthy in everything He does. He's perfect in all of His ways. The Bible calls this God's holiness. All of God's actions are just and righteous. And God never changes. God is also the creator of heaven and earth. And He created you and me as well. We read in Isaiah 45.12, God Himself speaking, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. The Bible also explains that you and I were created in the image of God. This means that we were created to display God's glory and praiseworthiness in a way that is different from all the rest of creation. We were created to admire God's supreme worth and excellencies, to exalt His righteousness and live in joyful submission to His law, to fear Him and trust Him always, and to rejoice in God and enjoy Him as our greatest delight and treasure. Again, we hear the voice of God in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. 
You shall love the Lord, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But there's a problem, brothers and sisters, and the problem is this. It's not within our nature to love God or delight in Him. It's not within our nature to fear God and acknowledge His glory. In fact, the problem's even deeper than that. Let's look now what the Bible says about you and I, about man. You see, even though you and I were created to enjoy a privileged relationship with God, the Bible explains that you and I were born into this world spiritually dead. Not even just spiritually dead, but hostile to God. In other words, we were born rebels, mutineers and insurgents, if you will, to God's glory and holiness. And in our hearts, we despise God. Simply put, we worship ourselves, not God, and insist on living our lives independent of Him. Those are pretty harsh statements. Those are pretty extreme, aren't they? And I would be ludicrous to stand up here and claim this if this wasn't the claim of Scripture. We don't have to get past the first book of the Bible before we reach the true nature, the true indictment of man's wicked nature. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a lot of superlatives in that statement. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we hear the psalmist in Psalm 23, beginning in verse 2, and it explains that God looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. And in Matthew 15, we hear our Lord Himself say, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Friends, it's hard to exaggerate the severity with which Scripture describes our bondage to sin and the hopelessness of our depravity. In fact, understood rightly, the message of the Gospel is an offense to our high opinion of ourselves. We are not good people who occasionally sin. Rather, we are defiant, vile idolaters who oppose God in every way, a putrid offense in the nostrils of God. Listen to the author of Ecclesiastes in chapter 9, verse 3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. In Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds. Did you hear that? Our righteous deeds, what we think of as righteous. He's not even talking about what we already know to be unrighteous. Let's just give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and speak about those deeds we think are righteous. What's the commentary on those? All our righteous deeds are what? Like a polluted garment. We all fade like the leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
And John writes in the third chapter of his gospel, verse 19, that the light that is Christ has come into the world. And what happened? People loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And speaking to believers' natural condition before their conversion, Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, listen to this, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You might ask, don't we have a free will? Can't we choose between good and evil? I mean, are we really in bondage to sin? Well, you're right. We do have a free will. But here's the problem. We always, always, always exercise our will according to our nature. And as Paul undeniably expresses in chapters, chapters 1 through 3 in his letter to the Romans, our nature vehemently and decisively opposes God. And as he explains later in the sixth chapter of Romans, we are slaves of sin. Jesus himself said in John 9, verse 34, he said, Truly, I truly, 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 I say to you, everyone who commits sin, did you catch that? Everyone, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Scripture explains that because of our sin, we rightly deserve God's judgment and condemnation in a literal, eternal hell. And not only do we deserve this, but friends, this, this is the crisis of judgment that awaits us when we die. In fact, the Scriptures clearly say that God's just anger rages against us. His wrath is set against us even now. Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 5, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And in his second letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul speaks of a time when the Lord will inflict, and I quote, vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What will their plight be? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. During His earthly ministry, Jesus spoke often of a literal hell. And He described it as a place of darkness and burning fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the real tragedy, brothers and sisters. The willful self-deception of man's heart blinds him to the gravity of his situation. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly, That is utter foolishness to those who are perishing. So there you have it. There you have it. In short, our view of God is too low and our view of self is too high. We come into this world both unable 
and unwilling to seek and obey God. And we flatter ourselves if we think otherwise. We are born into this world haters of God, destined for eternal punishment. And so if we are to please God and delight in Him, we need a whole new nature that desires God rather than flees from Him. We need forgiveness for our sin and deliverance from its eternal consequences. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, what does the Bible say about Jesus in light of these first two facts? You see, the fact is, brothers and sisters, that in light of that heinous news, God desires to free us from our sin and save us from His imminent wrath. And He does so not by ignoring our sin, but by moving in judgment against it. And He did this through Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. He was both fully God and fully man. You see, this is where the cross comes in. It's important to understand the cross as a divine act of justice. More specifically, a divine act of judicial substitution. Okay, what I mean by that is that Jesus was our substitute, bearing the punishment that we deserved, doing so in our place. It pleased the Father to pour the full fury of His just wrath against our sin upon Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Oh, thank you. Isaiah tells us in 53.10, it pleased the Father to pour the full fury of His just wrath against our sin upon Jesus. And it pleased Jesus to sacrificially give His life as a substitutionary payment for the sin of those who would trust Him alone. We have to think about this some more. Consider, when Jesus was crucified for our sin, God in human flesh was submitting Himself to the terror of the Father's judgment against our sin, bearing what you and I deserve, dying in our place, upholding the justice that God's holiness demanded. Sin must be condemned. Sin must be condemned. God cannot welcome us into relationship with Himself and simply ignore the reality of our transgressions committed against His holiness. The cross is, first and foremost, an act of judicial substitution. A judicial work was happening at the cross. Our sin was thrust upon the shoulders of Christ and His righteousness was credited to us. That's the transaction of the cross. And that's why we read in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. See the substitution? Or Isaiah 53, 5. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with 
His stripes, we are healed. Now, not only is the cross an expression of God's justice, friends, it is the deepest and most profound expression of God's love for His image bearers. Paul explains God's motivation for the cross this way in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. Jesus Christ willingly gave His life so that repentant sinners would be reconciled to God. By giving His life as a payment for our sin, the Father's justice was satisfied. No longer the object of God's wrath, we've become the object of the Father's special affection for His people. Now as wonderful as this news is, the cross won't benefit everyone. The Scriptures do not teach that all will be saved from their sin. Well, if that's the case, then how do you and I appropriate the mercy of the cross? This is an extremely important question, wouldn't you agree? If our greatest threat against us is God's justice in light of our sin, and God has made that provision to rescue us from His wrath, to reconcile us. And somehow, some way, that won't be given to all. And brothers and sisters, we have to ask, how do I put myself in the way of that? How do I appropriate the mercy of the cross? Is it enough simply to acknowledge these facts as true? Or, or join some kind of religious institution that acknowledges these facts as true? And then move on with our life? Our ambitions? Our dreams? Is that enough? The answer is in Jesus' very simple words at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we hear Jesus proclaim the very first words of Jesus' public ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repent and believe in the Gospel. The Scriptures teach that to be saved by the work of Christ, you must respond. You must repent of your sin and believe in the Gospel. These sound like two things, but they're really two parts of the same thing because they always go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't have repentance without saving faith. And you can't have saving faith without repentance. They're the same thing. But what does it mean to repent? Well, to repent is to experience a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will. It means that you see yourself as God sees you, hopelessly and helplessly in bondage to sin, deserving hell, no excuses, no exceptions. It's more than just a vague notion of sin. To repent means that there's some sense It means that there's some sense in which you are pressed by the weight of your sin. Pressed by the burden that your heart and actions have aroused God's righteous fury. To repent 
It's a cry out to God, asking for the grace to actively turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Obeying Jesus as your sovereign Lord and Savior. Consider the words of the psalmist in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And later in that same psalm, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's repentance, brothers and sisters. What about faith? What does it mean to believe in the gospel? What does it mean to have saving faith? Well, saving faith rests on the unshakable truth that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man and that He died in your place to satisfy your infinite debt to God. It's a settled dependency upon Christ alone for your salvation. Trusting in all that God has done to reconcile wretched sinners to Himself. Saving faith means that you fully abandon any hope in the false notion of your own righteousness. Trusting instead in God's provision of Christ alone. Not Jesus plus religious ceremony. Not Jesus plus sacraments. Not Jesus plus your own good deeds. But Christ alone in doing what only He could do. All of this is what the resurrection proves is true. But brothers and sisters, the resurrection means even more Even more, because the gospel isn't just about our individual salvation from sin. Rather, it's the promise of God to restore all of creation to the perfection He created it to be. You see, the resurrection reminds us that God is doing something bigger, something bigger than just you and me. There's more going on here than the narrow interests of our lives or even the narrow interests of our age. Throughout all of history, God is at work bringing about His kingdom purposes. Adam's race, created to walk with God in harmony, has fallen into sin and condemnation. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is creating a new humanity. A new humanity in which man will rejoice in God and delight in Him, displaying God's worth and glory as only His image bearers can do. The good news of the resurrection is that sin has not thwarted God's desire or God's plan. All that is wrong will be made right. Satan has been crushed. And across the pages of history, a remnant of Adam's rebellious race from every tribe, nation, and tongue, is being reclaimed as God's cherished people. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus was raised from the tomb, the choruses of heaven sing, Great 
And amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Alleluia. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters, that is the credibility of the resurrection. That is the significance of the resurrection. Let us pray. O Lord, Father in heaven, we cry out to you our thanksgiving, our gratitude, Lord. Who, who can rise up to thank you and to glory in your name to the degree you deserve? Father, we are indeed, we were indeed wretched sinners. But Jesus Christ has done for us what we could never do by ourselves. Lord, he laid down his perfect, innocent life as pavement, payment, for the sin of those most defiled uh, and most guilty. And Lord, through Christ, we are cloaked in His righteousness. And therefore, Lord, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have been brought out of Your wrath, never to experience that, O Lord, and made to be under the special affection of a most cherished people a people that spans all of time and all the places of this world, a new nation of people that will cry out and glory in You. Lord, we can't even imagine what we will one day be, but it will be something to behold. Lord, I pray that You would give us lips to sing. I pray that these would not just be brute facts of the Gospel, but that You'd work in our hearts to stir in affection. Lord, if we are as yet repentant and as yet believing, then break our prideful, stubborn hearts. Crush that within us that resists You. Awaken us to lay down our arms and acknowledge, yes, I am a sinner deserving of hell. And may we run to the cross crying out for the mercy of the One who laid down His life so that we would live and live eternally and live abundantly. We pray this, Lord, in Your name. Amen.